Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your host, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Well, Lee, we're back from Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving? Well, Thanksgiving was not bad. It, uh, of course, I, I don't know that I've ever had a bad one. Um, the food was good. Um, the uh, the break from the rat race was good. And uh, uh, I watched uh, more basketball than I should have. How about yours? Well, at least you got something out of it. Mine was a good break from everything, but uh, developed some kind of little virus there and didn't eat for a day and a half. So I think I, I missed some of the best parts of Thanksgiving. Oh, no. Well, that's, yeah. that's too bad. You have to make up for it at Christmas. Okay. Well, I should plan on that then. Yeah. Well, before we um, before we broke for Thanksgiving, we had the opportunity to interview uh, Patrick Strawbridge, who was actually one of the attorneys who argued uh, a case that we previewed in our Supreme Court preview, and, and we really thanked him for his time. Uh, before we get to that interview, though, Leah, I, I feel like we've got to mention this news that's coming out of China with what they're calling the um, paper protest or the paper revolution. It seems to have started after people died in a in a an apartment building where they were essentially welded inside, and because of China's COVID restrictions, and a fire broke out, and uh, you know mass protests are going on across the country. I don't know where it goes, but it's it's significant. Yeah, I don't either. I, I, it seems like it's almost every minute th- there's a development. Um, last night I, there were there was video. Um, or maybe it's even tonight because it was earlier today, our time uh, of um, military equipment being hauled to various places. Uh, it looks like they're going to try to crack down on the protesters. The protesters don't seem to be uh, letting up. Um, and I, I noticed uh, that in this country and in some European countries, uh, Chinese students were protesting outside of the various embassies and consuls uh, as well. I guess I'm guardedly hopeful that perhaps uh, the Chinese people can finally, uh, you know, make make something happen with regard to their freedom. That seems like a lot to hope for. It, it does. Um, and I think that our friend uh, who, uh, who censors Winnie the Pooh because of the resemblance um, will not hesitate to crack down in a vicious manner. I did notice uh, on uh, on Friday, I guess it was, when I watched uh, the U.S. and England in the World Cup, there was a report that um, in China, the crowd in the background is digitally digitally blurred so that the Chinese public watching the World Cup can't see that the people in the stands are not masked. That technology piece also goes to what's been reported about Apple changing the use of iPhones to essentially assist the the Chinese government and and limiting what protesters can share. Yeah, they're 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 they were using uh, I guess it was the AirDrop uh, feature on an iPhone that allows you to that's right communicate directly without I guess there's no trace so to speak and and they've limited in time. Uh, your ability to do that in in China, so that they can try to keep them uh, from organizing as much. But apparently, the Chinese vaccine is 
feckless at best, worse than ours. Uh, and then the Chinese have this policy where it's a zero COVID policy. So they're, they are, as you said, I mean, they're, they're, they're quarantining. If you get it, you're quarantined and they don't, uh, you know, it's not like you, you voluntarily stay home or whatever. They weld the door shut on these apartment buildings and homes and they're, they're placing people in, in various locations and taking children from parents and all kinds of things. I have heard a report that the folks who were welded into that apartment building where the fire broke out had been in there for over 90 days. Yeah, and, and it's not like they're getting them food to sustain them during the period of time that they're in there. You know, they just they just show up, weld the door shut, and you're on your own. And 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 you're right. From what I've heard, is it's not like it was here, where you know you you you, you test negative or or your fever goes away and it's gone for 24 hours or whatever the the the, the procedures or the protocols are. They just weld the door shut and good luck, which is awful. Uh, and you know that that apartment building that burned, I haven't heard. Maybe you have. How many people in there were actually positive? And then, you know, when the fire broke out, because they had done such a good job of welding the doors and the windows and all, they could not get in there fast enough to save them. And and they basically had to listen to those folks get burned alive. Yeah, it's a horrible situation. And quite frankly, the the Biden administration's response has been uh, weak, tepid. Tepid, that's a good term. Pretty pretty much useless. Right. Yeah, and, and and the press has given him an opportunity. I mean, they haven't come down hard on him about it, but they did give him an opportunity uh, yesterday or day before to at least, through uh, John Kirby, the national security spokesperson, you know, make some statement on it. And, and Kirby backpedaled and obfuscated and everything else. They just don't want to say much. And I think we have that audio. We continue to stand up and support the right of peaceful protest. Um, and I think we're going to watch this closely and, and we'll see where things go. This is, uh, I think, a moment to reassert what, what, uh, what we believe in when it comes to free assembly and, um, and peaceful protest. And we've done that and we'll continue to do that, whether it's uh, people protesting in Iran or China or anywhere else around the world. Um, nothing's changed about the, the president's firm belief in the power of democracy and democratic institutions and how important that is. Uh, you know, frankly, Lee, uh, John Kirby's been around for a long time. He's, um, and I think he knows that was a pretty weak statement. Oh, yeah. I mean, he can only do what he's, what he's allowed to do. You know, he's, as, I, as I understand it, he's still a, a serving naval officer. And, and so it's, it's not as simple even as if he were um, – a civilian employee, you know, he's, he's got to, he's got to do what the boss says do. And if the boss says go out there and it doesn't give him any arrows to shoot back or to shoot, it's just too bad. He's got to do it. And he's, he seems like a smart fella and he seems frankly, uh, a very competent individual. I mean, a likable person. I, I, I know that he hated having, having to go out there and tap dance around those, those questions. Well, you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, so I'll, I'll let that pass. I am. Uh, I am. And, you know, as you said, we hope that something positive comes of this, uh, something that brings freedom to the Chinese people. Um, I guess we just have to wait and see what happens. And, and we'll certainly probably be reporting on it in the future. Before we move on, you know, the, the former Chinese leader, I think I'm saying his name right, Zhao Jing, died today. Do you think that makes this better, worse, 
no effect? I don't know enough about the internal dynamics there to say. It seems to me, though, that uh, Z has pretty much taken uh, full control of, of the country and essentially is dictator for life at this point as of that last Congress six or eight weeks ago. So I, I, it's hard for me to see how that would have any effect. We'll certainly keep our eye on it. Yeah. But let's get to this interview. And as our listeners will remember, uh, before the Supreme Court term started the first Monday in October, we uh, each previewed a couple of cases that we thought would be interesting coming before the court. Uh, two of the ones that we had talked about were uh, students for fair admissions against UNC and Harvard. There were two separate cases. They'd been joined at one point and then they got split. Had to do with the use of affirmative action in college admissions. Uh, so we had the opportunity to talk with the attorney who actually argued um, for Students for Fair Admissions, uh, Patrick Strawbridge, recently. And uh, we appreciate the time he gave us. So uh, anything you want to say before we go to that interview? No, he was uh, he was most kind and generous. And uh, our time with him and, and his, his offering his, you know, a little bit of insight, frankly, uh, into not only the case, but sort of the workings and the dynamics of the court, which I, I, I found quite interesting. I agree. I agree. So I think our listeners will, too. We're excited to be joined today by Patrick Strawbridge, who is an attorney with the firm of Consavoy McCarthy. Uh, Patrick, thank you for being here today. Uh, thank you for the invitation. One of the reasons we really wanted to hear from you is that we did a Supreme Court preview before the term started. Uh, one of the, we each took some cases. One of the cases that I covered were the two affirmative action cases arising from Harvard and from UNC. Full disclosure, I'm a UNC grad. Um, and so talking through those, and then you actually argued the, the UNC case before the Supreme Court. So we wanted to hear your experience with that and, and how you became involved with the case first. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, these, uh, these cases were. Um, originally brought in uh, late 2014, they're among the first cases that the law firm, uh, Consovoy McCarthy, founded by my partners, Will Consovoy and Tom McCarthy, uh, they're among the first cases that firm brought uh, on behalf of a student and parent and otherwise uh, nonprofit group with people united for a single purpose. And that purpose is that race should not be used as a factor in deciding uh, where or whether you get to go to a particular college. Um, the, the cases were launched in November. Uh, I joined the firm shortly thereafter, a few months later, and then was uh, part of the litigation team that handled all these cases as they went through the, the pretrial process uh, and then trial. You know, I think I attended 40 or 50 depositions between the two cases. Each case featured more than 30 depositions uh, you know, including some expert depositions. Um, and then they uh, both went to trial. Harvard went to trial in, um, I believe it was the fall of 2018 um, in the uh, district court for Massachusetts. Um, the UNC case uh, uh, got caught up a little bit in the COVID, and so it was supposed to go to trial sooner than it did. Uh, we ultimately did a trial in Winston-Salem in the Middle District um, in the fall of 2020, uh, a little over two weeks of trial in uh, November of that year. Um, and then the cases ended up 
you know, about the time that the Harvard case got out of the First Circuit was about the time we got a trial court decision in uh, the District of North Carolina. And so it aligned that we were able to seek the Supreme Court's review, you know, in the ordinary course of the First Circuit's decision in the Harvard case, um, but also ask it to take the North Carolina case at the same time since they raised many overlapping issues. uh, And it would benefit the court to decide it, even though we had not yet been up to the Fourth Circuit. Um, That was the process to get the case to the court. And obviously, uh, we were pleased the court took the case and uh, honored to have the opportunity to present our arguments to the court a few weeks ago. You were a clerk for Justice Thomas, correct? Yes. In fact, that's how, that's how I met Will Consovoy at our firm. Okay. We, we both clerked for Justice Thomas in October term of 2008. And Ed, Ed shared with me um, that the first question you got was from Justice Thomas. Yes, that's uh, it, those two things are not necessarily related. The tradition since I understand. The, the tradition since COVID um, has been uh, that Justice Thomas is kind of the senior uh, justice on the bench now is uh, is given the opportunity to ask the first question. And so uh, he, he seems to have changed his his practice from from never to uh, I won't say frequently, but but more typically asking questions. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Most observers of the court would acknowledge that Justice Thomas had, you know, basically refrained from asking questions at most arguments for a number of years. Uh, Justice Thomas himself had said that this was in part because he was dissatisfied with kind of the free for all and the notion that advocates weren't giving an adequate chance to kind of make their case and answer questions. Um, I don't want to speak for Justice Thomas, but I, I think he had the sense that the argument was too much about the justices and not enough about the advocates. When they went to the, the phone arguments during COVID and there was this seriatim questioning, that was a more orderly presentation. And that's when Justice Thomas really started to participate uh, in almost every argument. And that has continued. And, you know, there are there's many of the changes to the argument process and, and the length of the arguments is, is one of them, as, as the, the case a few weeks ago shows. But um, I think most people think one of the benefits of this process is is for everyone to get the chance to see Justice Thomas uh, active in oral argument um, and revealing, uh, you know, his his thoughts and his impressions about a case that were never really a mystery to those who had the opportunity to see him behind the scenes. But it is it is nice to hear his voice during argument. Well, and and that leads me to my my ultimate question is as a as an appellate um, practitioner, how frustrating is it to to get the uh, the, the questions that's, that sort of, um, you know, they, they come early and, and, and often, and, and you, you, you get kind of off your, off your stride somewhat in a, in a limited amount of time, uh, that you have anyway, how, how, how hard is it to deal with that? When you go to the Supreme court, I I think you kind of expect that you're going to get questions from everybody and the way they sort of formalize the seriatim questioning now, it makes it even even more likely. Um, You know, one thing that the court has done in in recent years is it's gone to this two minutes of protected time at the beginning of the argument. It used to not do that. And you sort of jumped in and you had your 30 minutes and you knew you were going to get cut off the second your red light went on. And that was just how it went. Um, I think, to be honest, as an advocate, I, I probably prefer this process, as you know, as you guys, I assume, know from your own practice. The worst thing in the world is a cold bench. And the second worst thing in the world other than a cold bench is, 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 is walking out of there without the feeling that you had a chance to answer the questions that some judges had or that all the judges had. 
And so, I mean, for, for better or for worse, this, this new process, if it gives you one thing, it gives you a firm basis to understand what questions particular justices had. And over the, you, know, you don't have to worry that someone never said anything. So you can't figure out if they're worried about some part of your case that you could have addressed if you'd had the chance to speak to them. Um, so from that perspective, I think it's, it's ultimately a net positive. I, I do feel for, for the justices and for the staff when you have arguments that are running two hours past lunch. Um, but, um, I, I think in, in a vacuum, you'd always prefer more questions than fewer, I think, in an oral argument. Maybe you guys probably see that yourselves in your cases. Well, I, you know, just to follow up on that, I, I've never argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. I've argued before the North Carolina Supreme Court a few times. Uh, and the first time I was incredibly nervous because all I'd done was read transcripts, you know, throughout my practice about Supreme Court arguments and how people are getting cut off left and right. And I was actually, you know, I start getting questions and two or three questions in, it occurs to me, these are real questions that they actually want to know. And it wasn't just telegraphing some argument to another uh, justice. I, but I do wonder, and I, I like the new process better too, but I, I've always kind of wondered the degree to which the questions that the justices were firing back and forth were as much because they didn't understand something or wanted to understand something or that they were simply kind of staking out their position on the case. Yeah, I think it, historically that probably varied a little bit on what the case was and what the level of interest or familiarity with the issues the justices were. There are certainly cases that one could point to that uh, I don't have any specific ones in mind where you feel like the justices were more or less arguing with one another. And that was the kind of thing that I think goes to the point that Justice Thomas used to make sometimes about his frustration with the oral argument format. Um, you know, I do think, and you saw this a little bit in the Harvard and UNC arguments, that the chief took it upon himself to direct some traffic and to try to make sure that there was an opportunity to answer questions that were asked before people jump in. And the seriatim questioning at the end does allow kind of a reset. It doesn't force people to feel like they've got to get their questions in in this limited window of time before the red light goes on. Let me just follow up on that briefly, because I thought your opening uh, couple of sentences from the oral argument really put the whole case in perspective. And you started off as saying racial classifications are wrong. That principle was enshrined in our law at great cost following the Civil War. And to me, that, that kind of set the tone. That, that was the perfect topic sentence, so to speak, for, for your whole argument. Yes, I mean, one thing, it, I think that's consistent with how the court has always approached racial classifications, or at least has proposed that, you know, approached them in the post-Brown era. There was obvious a long and unfortunate history of the courts and other legal institutions essentially ignoring the requirement of equal protection of laws in this country. But, but certainly the, 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 the more recent doctrine has been to recognize that racial classifications are necessarily divisive. Uh, and therefore they are, they're, they're extremely disfavored if permitted at all at law. And, and I didn't think there was any problem with kind of setting that, uh, taking the ground at the beginning of the argument. I, I guess I, I also always like to note for people, um, that, you know, racial classifications are extremely unpopular among all Americans, including, uh, you know, members of each major minority group that is polled on this question in America. There was a Pew Research poll from over the summertime that showed that strong majorities of not only all Americans, but every single group, whether that be Hispanic American, African American, Asian American, uh, or white Americans, um, 
all oppose, you know, like I said, by, you know, more than double digits and frequently higher than that, the use of race uh, in the college admissions process. And so it's not in some ways, you know, the, the, the principle that's enshrined in our law is consistent with, I think, everybody's, you know, inherent sense of right or wrong, which is why I thought it was worthy to kind of start on that note. Did, and I, forgive me, it's, it's been it's been a while since I looked at your brief, but were you able to uh, incorporate any of that sort of um, social science polling in, information into your into your brief uh, at all? Or, or did you stay clear of that? We talked a little bit about it. it it's, it's relevant to the starry decisis factors. Obviously, one of the questions in this case was whether to overrule the Grutter decision from 2003. Um, and one of the questions when you go into, into stare decisis is, and there's a number of questions. One of them is, is the, is the precedent wrong? Is it grievously wrong? A second question is, are people relying on it? So even if it was incorrectly decided, is there some sort of edifice or, or reliance interest that justifies feeding it in place? And so I think that some of that science, some of the observations as to what's happening on college campuses generally, whether, whether, you know, the use of race has been you know, ameliorative or divisive itself on college campuses. And I think public attitudes are relevant to that point. Of course, you know, normally when you're arguing a constitutional case, especially a constitutional case involving the Bill of Rights, what the public thinks about it is not particularly, uh, you know, you know, uh, informative. Um, at least what the public today thinks about it may not be informative, but the public thought about it at the time that the words were enacted could, could very well be informative under an originalist approach. But, um, but, um, in this case, I think it, 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 it did have some bearing on that point. Uh, and like I said, it's also just consistent with what the law in this area has long held, which is that um, race is a poisonous attribute to base any governmental decision making on. Uh, and our Constitution uh, and, and the statutory law uh, outright prohibits it. And the extent that there have been exceptions recognized uh, to that rule in the law, they are extremely narrow and carefully policed by the Supreme Court. That's, of course, what we're asking for in this case. I know lawyers are sometimes wary about making predictions, but do you have any forecast for how the court's going to decide these, or do you think there'll be any difference between the two? You won't get any any predictions from me <laughs> on that. You've shot the arrow in the air, and now it, now it, it lands where it lands. Um, you know, I, I the, the cases, I think, do present a lot of overlapping issues. Technically, Harvard as a private institution is not bound by the Equal Protection Clause. It's bound by Title VI. Don't think that there's either practically or linguistically that big of a difference between Title VI's prohibition on racial discrimination and what the Equal Protection Clause requires. But there, I mean, there are, there is that distinction to some extent. There's also, uh, I think, a record that at least raises more questions about the treatment of Asian Americans at Harvard, uh, than it does at UNC. But ultimately, I think the court took these cases together because they both raise similar issues and the same legal principles will probably apply in deciding them. That's what we urged at the search stage. And so, um, you know, I, I, I certainly hope that the court finds the records in both cases informative to its decision making. I understand. I won't ask that again. <laughs> this is uh, number five, I think, for you before the Supreme Court or perhaps number six. Uh, I've argued two cases before this. Two cases. This is my second case. Okay. The firm has argued five or six between the various lawyers at the firm. Is that something, um, I mean, you're doing that from Boston, correct? 
Uh, yeah, I, we have an office in Boston. Uh, I actually split my time, believe it or not, between Maine and North Carolina, oh, wow. uh, for my residence. Uh, I, uh, I, I mostly in Maine. I, I hope to be spending more of the winter time in North Carolina <laughs> as, as time goes on. But, um, um, but yeah, like our firm, you know, our firm has a number of former Supreme Court clerks at it, people who are familiar with, you know, appellate law is kind of founded to bring these types of cases at the Supreme Court. So, um, you know, we, we, we're, we're proud of the record we compiled, uh, on that front and we hope to continue to have the opportunity to present more cases before the court. Sure. That's great. What, what did you do between Justice Thomas's clerkship and, and this current firm? I worked for a large national law firm, uh, that was based out of Boston. And, uh, I did that for a number of years. Um, it was, uh, it was then absorbed into an even larger international law firm that was based out of Philadelphia. Uh, and actually I had a good experience there and I was satisfied and, and enjoyed the people I worked with in the cases I was doing, but an opportunity came up to work, um, in, in, um, at this firm with some people I knew very well and considered good friends and also excellent lawyers. Um, and to kind of have a little bit more freedom, do something a little more entrepreneurial. And it was very difficult to pass up that opportunity. Um, and, uh, and so I, I left a good job for an even better job, sure. uh, is how I, how I like to think of it. And it's been, it's been extremely rewarding. I mean, things have gone better than I could have ever imagined, but you know, the other issue that we were running into, especially if you litigate cases on kind of the conservative side of the political aisle, which is what our firm does, uh, it's increasingly very difficult to bring those cases, even on a pro bono basis. Uh, if you work in a large national law firm, yeah. they're just they're not the side of these disputes that those firms tend to fall upon. And so, um, that, that was certainly a factor in me deciding, uh, you know, the opportunity to litigate these cases in particular was, was exciting. And, you know, the idea when we brought them was that we would end up at the Supreme court. And it was, it was quite something to actually find ourselves there a few weeks ago and to be in the court, think about the journey that we had undertaken to get there. Last question I have, and it kind of goes along with that, but doing indigent criminal defense, as as I have in the past, clients sometimes want to appeal to the Supreme Court. We followed that process and filed a cert petition, none of which have ever been granted. I have been told if this court ever grants cert on a case that as the attorney of record, that you will hear from lots of attorneys who want to come in and argue that case. Uh, and because you're basically told it's malpractice if you carry it forward, having never, never been there before. And, and I just, I've always wondered if that was true, if that was your experience or around the court. Uh, I think there is some, my, my answer to that is, is, is yes and no. There is, there is certainly fewer arguments than there are people who have experience and want to get experience arguing in from the Supreme Court. So there's no doubt that there is a specialized Supreme Court bar has developed over the last 10 or 15 years. And a lot of times uh, those people have insight or experience that that would be helpful to somebody who had never been up in front of the Supreme Court before. Having said that, I don't want to suggest that people aren't capable of making good arguments and even winning their cases in their first appearances before the court, even the Members of the so-called Supreme Court bar all got their start somewhere. Um, and so I think that it just has to be done on a case by case basis. There are some cases that are granted because there's a larger principle at stake and knowing what else the court thinks about and talks about, uh, may give you an advantage in preparing for other arguments. There, there are other cases where the court is going to 
need, you know, information that perhaps a specialist is going to be better off providing to them than, than a generalist would be. As a general rule, you know, the Supreme Court justices are all generalists. They're not specialists. And so, um, I think that's why you've seen sort of a Supreme Court, Supreme Court bar develop, but I think you kind of have to know and understand what the, what the circumstances of the case are before you can truly judge whether, whether, um, whether it should be handed off. Again, we, we had the fortune of working in an area where basically all the large law firms are on the other side of the case. So there was no danger. Someone was going to come in and try to pick off these cases from us. I, I don't have any other questions. Maybe Lee does. I, I don't either. I, we just appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. I was happy to do it. And you know, Alan Ruley, uh, he was one of the local lawyers who, um, I think might have recommended you guys. He was, he was helpful, very helpful to us as a local counsel. We worked closely with him both in the run up to the trial and at the trial itself. And, uh, and when he, when he mentioned that you guys would, would be interested in talking to me, I'm always happy to do something at Alan's advice. I've been following it for years and it's never steered me wrong. So again, thank you for your time and, and you have a good day and a good Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to your listeners. Again, we want to thank Patrick for joining us. We thought his comments were fascinating. And Lee, I just want to I want to throw one point out. You know, I mentioned it during the interview, but when when he stood up to begin his oral arguments, you know, I mentioned the first sentence was racial classifications are wrong. But he went on to say That principle was enshrined in our law at great cost following the Civil War. A century of resistance to race neutrality followed, but this court's landmark decision in Brown finally and firmly rejected the view that racial classifications have any role to play in providing educational opportunities. And I I thought that set the tone for his argument well. I thought it set the tone for the, the, the entire case, as well as the one against Harvard. I think you're right. It, it was a, a a bombshell. I mean, who knows what the court might do? We can count noses and speculate, but we really don't know. But he certainly got started, or, or by starting with that statement, he sort of forced not only opposing counsel, but the court to sort of play in on his field with his ball by his rules. Uh, and, and I thought it was a really well done because uh, I went back and listened to it again after your um, after you pointed it out in the interview, uh, and and he, he, it was it was profound. So again, we thank Patrick for being with us. Um, you know, in other news this week, I don't know what you've been really focusing on, Lee, but you know, other things that happen include this Respect of Marriage Act that has now received enough Republican support to get past a filibuster in the Senate. Uh, And I kind of want to get your thoughts about that. You know, thinking back over the history of kind of related legislation, Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act years ago with Democrat support. Uh, Even when the issue came up about uh, gay marriage, Obama opposed it through two presidential campaigns and as a sitting president. And in only a few years now, we've had the Supreme Court rule in Obergefell to completely redefine marriage in this country. And now uh, the U.S. Congress is has, has passed legislation which essentially enshrines um, gay marriage into federal law uh, with, with Republican support. Yeah. Um, and both uh, senators from North Carolina. I, I guess it, my, my thought is. 
I don't care how popular something is. The Constitution is the Constitution or it's not. And clearly under the the, the terms uh, and the provisions in the Constitution, marriage is a matter for states and not the federal government. And so I, I believe it to be unconstitutional on its face. I think it's unnecessary after the Supreme Court decisions that you cited from back 2012 and 15, whatever they were, um, you know, the, the ship on same sex marriage has sailed. And I don't think from a practical standpoint and a political standpoint, there's any going back. And, you know, the world is spinning out of control with regard to uh, the situation with China, both economically and, and from a national security perspective. You know, we have Ukraine and, and the Germans and, and, and what's going to happen with the Russians and all that kind of stuff. And we have our own economic problems with inflation. And you were prescient uh, several months ago when you talked about this, this rail strike that uh, might come about. And, and this is what the Congress of the United States wants to spend its time on. Um, and, and it's it's really um, it's virtue signaling and. You know, whether or not a law is popular or good does not make it constitutional. And and, and that's my, my issue with it. And I think it it's going to do one of two things and maybe both. And, and one is it's not going to do anything at all with regard to same sex marriage or interracial marriage. But it is going to be used as a weapon against traditional Christian religion. And and. Um, and I think that's problematic for lots of reasons. Well, and I wanted to go there with you for a moment because there is language in the bill which supposedly protects religious organizations. Mike Lee, senator of Utah, said that wasn't sufficient, and he proposed an amendment which would have toughened that language up, if that's if that's the way to say it. That amendment failed. So to me, it's it's only a matter of time before this thing gets pushed to the next level. And religious organizations that are already under attack in a number of states, such as as the Jack Phillips case out of Colorado or the website designer case, which is is another one that the court will probably be ruling on. In addition to that, though, it's only a matter of time before churches and, and other religious organizations are forced to accept marriages which they believe violate the tenets of their religion. Yeah. And and, you know. We always hear that the slippery slope argument is is used to scare people and and to um, uh, cause folks to to refuse to take a step in the progressive direction. But I think the slippery slope can't even talk today. Uh, I mean, Obergefell, you know, they said the proponents of same sex marriage said that that's what we want. And, and now we've got all this transgender uh, controversy floating around where intelligent, educated, professional people won't or can't even define what a woman is. And I mean, you know, one of my old law partners used to say, 
we're going to have a situation where the, the man, uh, some man or some woman wants to marry his lamp. And, and everybody would laugh and say, you know, that's not, you know, but I mean, I, that's, that's where we're headed. And, and it, it makes a mockery of our legal system, in my opinion. And I think what we're, what we're coming to as part of this attack on religion is that there will really be no more marriage. It's, it'll just be almost a, a contractual thing and that's it. And you wonder, you know, what role, if any, the state will continue to play. It could be more of a role. It could be less. But I, I just I wonder if, if churches aren't going to just surrender the field, so to speak. How do you tell someone they can't marry their their pet or they can't marry three people? I don't understand. And again, as I said, I, I think it's something that the states are not only allowed, but obligated to deal with under our Constitution. And to be clear, the, 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 the bill, and it has to go back to the House for approval, then it has to be signed by the president. Well, that all seems to be essentially a done deal. But to be clear, the actual language of the bill does talk about only two individuals. But I think you make a very good argument um, that the slippery slope is alive and well. And only it was only a few years ago when the idea was that individuals could engage in civil unions and then it was that they could get married, but no one else had to recognize it. Then it became everyone had to recognize it. And then very quickly it moved to, if you don't recognize it, that you are uh, discriminating and should be put out of business. Uh, so we've seen all of that on the slippery slope and that's not to even touch the transgender piece and how quickly it went from what one person wants to do to what children should be taught. Well, and what children should do, because, you know, there's a move um, and frankly, it's it's still a little bit under the radar, but there's a move to um, bless pedophilia because academia is now talking about. um, We don't call we don't use the term pedophilia anymore, or actually it's pedophilia because it's Greek, not Latin or Latin, not Greek, but, but be that as it may. And we, we call it that we said that they're attracted to young people. I think I think the language I've heard some professor use is MAP, minor attracted person. That's right. Uh, whereas That's it right. wasn't that and, long ago that they were a pervert uh, or, right. a, or a sex offender or a pedophile or maybe a pedophile, as you say. Right. And people talked about putting them in the wood chipper feet first, you know, um, and and if if these things occur under Congress, uh, congressional action. At what point is somebody going to sue and say, well, you know, why can't I marry my 12 year old boyfriend or girlfriend? And how dare you prosecute me for what I do privately, consensually? And, you know, if if we're going to allow and apparently a lot of states are maybe even all are allowing minors to consent. To sex change surgeries. You know, why can they not consent to marriage? Um, and it's it, it really. It's troubling. Well, it is troubling. And, and, you know, the, the idea behind all of this and the reason it's being changed is. And let me just you know, my view of that is that th- this is a redefinition of marriage, of traditional marriage that has existed for literally millennia. 
and which was ascribed to by um, yeah, a huge percentage of the world's religions. Um, yeah, basically everyone in the West, with some exceptions. Um, very limited exceptions. Very limited. I mean, the Mormons, and that's about all I can think of or all I know about, but define marriage the same way. And, um, you know, I, I think if you're an adult and you can find a doctor that will do whatever surgery you want on you, that's your business. You know, knock yourself out. Right, go for it. I have no problem with that whatsoever, but not children. And I think that, that changing these terms is the, is the way you, you kind of get over the bar and begin to change people's attitudes about, frankly, what is morally right and, and what ought to be not only shunned, but criminalized. Um, I mean, no, no, uh, successful society has ever tolerated child sexual abuse. And, and those that allow child, um, sacrifice and so forth, they met with, um, defeat and, and they are no more. And again, I, I think you're right. It's about attacking traditional marriage and Christianity. So I'm sure there'll be more developments on this. Maybe by the time we talk next week, this this will have have, have passed the House. We'll certainly uh, bring it back up if if anyone uh, you know it has a has a representative who is in support of this, but they think they can change their mind. I certainly advise them to try to contact their representatives in the house. That is the last stopgap on this bill. So, what else is on your mind this week, Lee? Uh, you mentioned the rail railroad strike and we've. Yeah, I think that I think. Can you bring us up to speed? Because you, you talked about that at least once, I think maybe even twice uh, back in August and September. Yeah, we certainly talked about about it when it happened. And about three weeks ago, uh, that was one of the items that was on my radar at the time because I had questions about whether it was actually going to uh, occur or not in terms of the the, uh, the labor agreement going into into place. But um, you know, the short version, I guess, is that there was a lengthy negotiation between uh, multiple unions and the railroad itself. The Biden administration stepped in and brokered some type of agreement, uh, and that was back in the August-September timeframe. Part of that agreement, however, required each of the unions to vote on it, with the largest unions' votes not occurring till after the midterm election. Uh, so essentially, they took the credit for avoiding uh, a railroad strike, which would have been devastating for the economy and devastating, you would think, for their political chances in November uh, they took the credit for doing all that, and it was, you know, built on this house of cards. Well, there are 12 unions. Uh, four of those unions have voted against the agreement, and it's based not on the money, as I understand it, but on, on benefits in terms of time off to go to the doctor. The, the, the terms of the tentative agreement are that they would get um, – and I, and I may have this, this number slightly wrong, but they would get something like three or four sick days currently. And for years, they've had no sick time, uh, but they would get certain to 
days that they could be sick and they could schedule doctor's appointments. However, to schedule a doctor's appointment under this agreement, they have to give 30 days notice and they can only schedule it on Tuesdays, Wednesdays or Thursdays, which is that's just does not make a lot of sense. I mean, maybe you, um, you know, maybe you can schedule a physical a month from now, but you can't schedule getting sick a month that's from right. now. Uh, so the unions, several of them have rejected it. Uh, Biden doesn't want to take action now on his own because he won't, doesn't want to go against the unions. He's always said he's a big union guy. So he's thrown it to Congress. Nancy Pelosi immediately jumped on it, washed his hands and said, Congress, you fix it. That Nancy Pelosi immediately jumped on it and introduced legislation to basically impose this contract on um, the railroads and the labor unions. It seems like it's going to barrel its way through Congress in short order and there won't be any railroad strike so everybody can get their toys for Christmas. Right. And I, I, my understanding of the statute that allows Congress to do this is is based upon uh, the harm that would occur uh, both to the economy and potentially to our, our national security situation in, in the event of a, of a rail strike. That's my understanding also. And, you know, quite frankly, Lee, I, I have several thoughts about it. One is I don't I don't like the idea of the government becoming involved in in, in you know private business labor negotiations. I mean, that's really for them to resolve. I do understand that it is is crucial to the nation's economy. It's not the same thing as air traffic controllers. I don't think as they were crucial to the uh, flying public safety, uh, but this is certainly important. Yeah. When I look at it, I question whether it's a good deal for the 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 members of labor and I understand why they would be reticent to approve it. Yeah. I, I'm normally not necessarily a pro labor uh, person, but I, I think they're right. I mean, the, the notion, like you said, of you got to schedule a doctor's appointment 30 days out. It can only be on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, that's crazy. Um, and, and I think they, they were wanting like seven days of sick leave a year. Um, that, that, that seems more than reasonable to me. Uh, I agree. You know, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch it. What What do you think? And I wanted to pick your brain about this because it, it, it's, it's really starting. I think it's going to start to bubble up on everyone's radar. And that is the spending measures that are going to have to be enacted in the Congress to keep the government from shutting down um, because we don't ever pass a budget anymore. And we'll have to do a continuing resolution, I suppose. And it seems that, I mean, John Thune, who is um, he's part of the Vichy GOP is what they're calling them. Uh, he seems uh, to be signaling that the Republicans will go along with another continuing resolution. But w- what are your thoughts there? Interesting, you should ask, because there were two things that I had on my radar for the near future. And that was one of those two. Um as I understand it, that the current spending authority expires in December. Right. Schumer wants a continuing resolution for the entirety of 2023 and to marry that with a debt limit extension. And he wants it all to be approved by this Congress before Republicans take the House in January. We're in a situation now where that can pass the current House. Um. And so it comes down to whether or not there are enough GOP senators in the Senate that will sign off on this thing um, to allow it to move forward. 
Now, my opinion is that if they agree to a CR for 2023, they've essentially gutted all of the leverage which the incoming House of Representatives, the Republican-led House of Representatives, would have in spending negotiations. They've taken away that authority. Not to mention the fact that why why in the world would they agree to something to bind the next Congress before they come into office? So because yeah, they're a lame duck Congress. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm fine with a continuing resolution that that keeps the government funded till January when the new House is sitting, and then they can make a decision. Then I agree. I might even think that you know keep it going till March or April. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but hey, I give them a couple of weeks. I understand. Right. Uh, and, and because and, and help me here, if if enough senators can 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 vote no to keep it from passing in in next month, then the legislation, even though it's passed the 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 even though it may have passed one of the houses of Congress, it dies because there's a new Congress coming in January. So it would have to come back up in both houses. Correct. Well, it does, although you you have that gap between when the current spending authority expires in the, around the middle of December and the new Congress comes in in January. Right. And so if nothing happens before that point in December or even toward the end of December, I mean, they can negotiate all the way up till the day before the new Congress sits, you know, but it, and they always do and they give retroactive pay to all the employees and stuff like that. But right. if nothing happens there. You're right. It's dead. It's an issue for the next Congress. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I, I hope that and I don't have a lot of confidence or faith from a Republican standpoint in Mitch McConnell. Uh, oh, and and then here's the other thing that I wanted to get your thought on, because you have a, a, um, a keen eye on this stuff and you also keep up with it. Is Kevin McCarthy going to be the speaker? I keep reading about he doesn't have the votes, but he's bound and determined to to force a vote. And if he does, we might end up with, you know, King Jeffries as the Speaker of the House. Well, I think McCarthy will be the Speaker. And I thought that before tonight, but an hour ago or so, I heard that some of the ones who were opposed to him had changed their mind. And I don't have the names. I just heard it in passing on, on the radio. So I don't know the specifics of that, but I've always thought he will be the next speaker. Well, he, he would not be my first choice, but he'd be better than certainly anybody from the Democrat side. And, and uh, you know, and then he gets a chance to prove himself, I guess, uh, as to whether or not he's going to stay true to his his beliefs. Right. Or what he expresses as his beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. So what's on your radar for the next week? I think just that and then the economy, you know, um, as we head into the Christmas season. Um, I got you. Oh, I got one more thing for everybody to look out for. Um, and this is from Defense News. The U.S. Air Force's next stealth bomber, the B-21 Raider, will be revealed to the public on December 2nd. That's, that's this Friday. It is the first public unveiling of a new bomber since the B-2 in November of 1988. Wow. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what it looks like. There's some artist renderings on the Internet. Uh, who knows? They're probably right. But, uh, you know, still to see it actually come out and, and you know, be shown off. I think that's going to be interesting. 
Yeah, that would be. And that's Friday, you say? That is this Friday, December 2nd. I'll keep an eye out. What else is on your radar? That was it. Are your Tar Heels going to beat Indiana tonight? Well, you know, I wasn't going to bring up Tar Heel news because it's been a little disappointing lately. You know, the football team lost two in a row to close out the year, and now they have to play uh, Clemson for the ACC championship this week. Clemson, of course, coming off a, a one-point loss to the Gamecocks of South Carolina, which was surprising. So, um, yeah, things aren't as positive on the football side as they were before. And then basketball lost two out of the last three games after looking shaky every other game of the year except for one. Uh, Indiana is going to be a very tough test. Quite frankly, it depends on which team shows up. And yeah. none of the teams that have shown up so far except for except – for, you know, about two halves over two different games have been the the Tar Heels that you expected who were in the uh, Final Four last year. And, of course, you know, in the Final Four, I always have to mention that they, you know, beat Duke in Coach K's final game of his career and sent him out with a loss. So, um, you know, I'm concerned about the game against Indiana, but uh, we'll see. Uh, and But I, I don't think there's anything for you to worry about. Uh, it's a question of, what kind of seed they're going to get in March. That That's really the only issue. No, well, it's a long time before. Yeah, That's right. But, I mean, I they're a quality team. Yeah. yeah. Even though they stubbed their toe against Iowa State. And um, and that's really the – I think that's the only – I mean, I hesitate to even say bad loss of the two. Um, perplexing loss, I'll say it that way. That's a good way to put it. Are, are you going to the – ACC uh, championship on Saturday? No, I have other plans this weekend, so I won't be there for that. So, yep. All right, you got anything else for tonight? Nope. Nope. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can email us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please click subscribe with your podcast provider. Leave us a review and tell your friends. Thank you.